police officer needs help at the Bank of America, Lower Canyon, north of Kittred. 39, we're responding code 3. Station 839 is responding code 3. Have any of you out there listening ever really thought about the difference between a burglary, robbery, and theft? I guess I really hadn't thought about it until I started researching this episode. We say burglary when someone breaks into a home, right? Or a theft if someone steals a car. And we say robbery when you walk up to a person with a weapon and demand their wallet. We say we've been robbed. We use those terms when describing those specific kinds of crimes, but what is the actual technical difference? We don't say things like, my wallet was burglarized or my car was robbed. It sounds weird and we don't use those terms interchangeably as they are different. But what the three do have in common is that they all involve the unauthorized taking of someone's personal property by another person. However, beyond that, they are three uniquely distinct crimes. Let's take a look at each one. Theft is the most basic of the three crimes. A theft occurs anytime there is an unauthorized taking of property from another with the intent to permanently deprive that person of the property. In most states, the crime of larceny has been merged into the more generalized crime of theft. But in some states, larceny is still considered a crime of its own. But there is a difference between those two crimes also. Theft differs from larceny in a few ways. For example, the term theft does not describe one property crime, but many different crimes. Therefore, theft is more generic of a term describing all property crimes, including larceny. Also, theft involves the stealing of tangible and non-tangible objects. Larceny crimes only encompass the taking of property with the intention of depriving the owner of it forever. There are two kinds of larceny, petty and grand larceny. Petty larceny consists of a misdemeanor crime where an individual takes property valued at a small amount, while grand larceny involves stealing property with a higher value. Theft can also be divided into petty and grand thefts like larceny, but unlike larceny, theft can include things other than property, like identity theft, extortion, embezzlement, and fraud. These are examples of theft that aren't larceny. The crime of burglary is often equated with theft, but it doesn't actually require a theft to occur or to even be intended. Burglary is simply the unlawful entry into a structure, such as a home or a business, with the intent to commit a crime while inside. So despite the fact that many burglaries where someone unlawfully enters into a home or business often involves theft, the crime intended can be any crime, from theft all the way up to murder. The burglary charge will still stand, regardless of whether the intended crime was actually committed. In addition, the unlawful entry into the structure doesn't necessarily have to be accomplished by breaking and entering, though this is often the case. Rather, the entry must simply be unlawful, such as trespassing through an unlocked door. So then there's robbery. What sets it apart from theft? Well, robbery is essentially a theft, but accomplished through the use 
a physical force or fear. For example, if someone sets their handbag down on a table and someone walks by and steals it, that's a theft. But if someone is holding their handbag and someone walks up and demands the purse in a threatening way or takes it away violently, that would be a robbery. So with that being said, if a person were to break into a closed bank and steals money, that would be a burglary. But if a person enters into an open bank and takes money by force or threat of force, then that would be a robbery. Today, I am going to take you on a detour to the Southern California community of North Hollywood, a neighborhood in the East San Fernando Valley region of the city of Los Angeles, home to the NoHo Arts District, the Academy of Television Arts and Sciences, and Universal Studios Hollywood. But more than 20 years ago, North Hollywood was rocked by an event so dramatic and so shocking that by the time the morning of February 28, 1997 was over, approximately 1,750 rounds of ammunition would have been fired, 12 police officers and 8 civilians would have been wounded, and the two men who started it all would be dead. In this episode of California Dreaming, the tale of 44 minutes. Do you guys remember Dane Cook? I used to like that guy. He used to sell out stadiums with his comedy shows. I wasn't sure exactly what happened to him. He kind of just disappeared suddenly. I knew he had been accused of joke thievery, or is that joke robbery? I don't know. Maybe a burglary? Technically not larceny, but joke theft nonetheless. I looked it up anyway, to see how, why, when, and where Dane Cook fell off the radar. Apparently, the guy has had an unfortunate series of career-destroying things happen to him, aside from being a copycatty comedian. And this list, sadly, is kind of long. His movie Employee of the Month tanked with the box office and with the critics. His next movie, Good Luck Chuck, was also maligned by critics. Other comedians started calling him out for stealing their material. His peers in the comedy business seriously disliked Dane. He tried his hand at a more dramatic movie role, but that flopped too. He made no secret of the fact that he wanted to win the role of Captain America, but he wasn't even in the conversation. His comedy album sales took a steep dip and were no longer bestsellers. He made a joke about the Dark Knight movie theater shooting, and that landed him in hot water. Really? Do you think it's ever going to not be too soon to joke about that? I certainly don't. His last low-key intimate comedy event flopped, as his fan base was virtually non-existent. Having been one of the first comedians to make a huge splash onto social media by way of MySpace, it appears as though Dane crashed and burned alongside MySpace, as it did not translate well for him at all over to other platforms such as Twitter. Dane also tried his hand at a sci-fi movie, which flopped worse than his social media presence. 
He produced and starred in 400 Days. How bad did it flop? It earned $58 in the UK in 2016. He also had an NBC sitcom in the works that was cut before it even got off the ground. Anyway, sorry, I got off on a tangent. So I'm bringing up Dane Cook because the subject of today's tale reminds me of a bit that he did about heists. Some of you may remember it. He joked that there's one thing that men want more than anything. They want to be part of a heist. He said every time we watch the movie Heat, we're like, we want to do that. We want to run down Main Street with an AK-47 looking for a van, the getaway van, while the computer guy is like, one minute, one minute, just let me hack into the mainframe. And you want to get shot in the back of the leg, but it stings really bad, but it kind of makes you feel kind of cool because you're bleeding from the leg. You guys might have heard him do this bit. It's pretty easy to find on YouTube. It's interesting how we kind of glamorize the idea of pulling off the perfect bank robbery, especially if no one gets hurt. You have this well-laid plan. It goes off without a hitch. You make off with the money and vanish to live comfortably for the rest of your life on some deserted tropical island. That might only happen in the movies, though. America has had quite a storied history when it comes to bank robberies. The first notable period of the bank robbery in the United States coincides with the expansion to the West. There were gangs of outlaws like the James Younger Gang and Butch Cassidy's Wild Bunch, making their way across the lawless Wild West, holding up trains, robbing banks, and killing law enforcement officers. Historians believe the first bank robberies in the United States occurred when people associated with Frank and Jesse James robbed the Clay County Savings Association in Liberty, Missouri, on February 13, 1866. The bank was owned by former Republican militiamen, and the James brothers and their associates were bitter ex-Confederates. The gang made way with $60,000 and ended up wounding a bystander while making their getaway. Not long afterwards, the James brothers joined forces with outlaw Cole Younger and a few other former Confederates to form the James Younger Gang. Together, they traveled across the southern and western parts of the United States, robbing banks and stagecoaches, often in front of large crowds of people. The Wild Bunch, another iconic outlaw gang of the Wild West, committed their crimes in the early 1900s and included Butch Cassidy, the Sundance Kid, and Ben Kilpatrick. Although the robberies primarily targeted trains, the Wild Bunch was responsible for several bank robberies, including one at the First National Bank in Winnemucca, Nevada, for over $32,000. As the West was becoming more and more settled, and as it grew in population and development, the era of the outlaw bank robbery fell to the wayside, only to be replaced by the public enemy era. There was an increase in bank robberies and organized crime during the 1920s and 1930s, and this forced J. Edgar Hoover to develop an Enhanced Federal Bureau of Investigation, or the FBI. He is the one who appropriated the term public enemy in referring to wanted criminals already charged with crimes. He gave the dubious moniker of public enemy number one to outlaws John Dillinger, Pretty Boy Floyd, 
Babyface Nelson and Alvin Creepy Carpus, respectively, as each one became either arrested or killed. And with these bank robberies committed by public enemies against the backdrop of the Great Depression, these crimes loomed large and glamorous. Harvey John Bailey, whose bank robberies were committed between 1920 and 1933, netted him over $1 million and earned the nickname the Dean of the American Bank Robbers. John Dillinger and his associates gang-robbed dozens of banks between 1933 and 1934, collecting more than $300,000. Dillinger was known for being somewhat of a Robin Hood-type character in American culture, robbing from the rich to give to the poor. But his partner, Babyface Nelson, was the antithesis, notorious for shooting both law enforcement and innocent bystanders. He actually holds the record for killing more FBI agents in the line of duty than any other criminal in history. However, these guys' robbing careers were short-lived. In 1934, the FBI trapped and killed Dillinger, Nelson, and Floyd. The evolution of anti-robbery technology started making it more difficult to rob a bank and get away with it, especially in the modern era. There has been an overall decline in the numbers of bank robberies in the United States. However, there is usually a spike during difficult economic times and recession. Exploding die packs, security cameras, and silent alarms all contribute to the drop in successful bank robberies. The heyday of the American bank robber is behind us. The crime itself, though, continues to be attempted by many who are looking to acquire easy money. There are different ways and styles in which to rob banks. Unlike what is depicted in the movies, the majority of bank robberies are not with guns blazing, hopping over counters, or sophisticated, well-planned-out multi-person operations where the robbers get in and out in a set amount of time, like the aforementioned movie, Heat. Different robbers have different styles of robbing banks. Unlike what is depicted in the movies, the majority of robberies are not with guns blazing, counter-jumping, or sophisticated multi-man operations. There are basically five types of bank robberies. Armed, morning, takeover, verbal, and note. They are pretty self-explanatory. The armed robbery is where a weapon is brandished. The morning is a robbery occurring at the beginning of the day before the bank office is open. The takeover is where robbers, typically armed robbers, take over the lobby, sometimes taking hostages and demanding money. Verbal is the robber simply stating his or her demands and the note is usually a lone robber who passes a note to a teller with demands. The note method has historically been the most common type of bank robbery. However, these types have been in decline in recent years with an upward trend of takeover types of robberies. Why the change in trends? It's likely the idea to get in and out as soon as possible to get the quickest reaction if they skip the note and just go straight to the demands and to do so by force or with the brandishing of a weapon. So enter into our story today. Larry Phillips and Emil Matasarano, also known as the High Incident Bandits. Who were these men? Where did they come from? 
And how is it that they came to perpetrate the most violent police shootout on American soil to this day in what is now famously known as the North Hollywood shootout? Before I get into what they did, I want to talk a little bit about where they came from. Larry Phillips Jr. was born September 20, 1970 in Los Angeles, California to parents Barbara Allen and Daniel Warfell. These were not their real names. The address on the Phillips birth certificate, fictitious as well. Daniel listed his occupation as a truck driver from Colorado and Barbara said she came from Utah. All this information with the exception of their home states were lies too. Names, occupations, addresses, everything was fake. So Larry Phillips says he became known to be later in life was actually born Larry Warfell. He would keep his name for 17 years. Miss Allen and Mr. Warfell were actually Dorothy Clay and Larry Phillips Sr. And they were on the run from the law. What were they on the run from? Well, apparently, the elder Phillips, one year out of high school, participating in a drunken prank, was arrested along with some friends for attempting to unearth a coffin and, get this, in an effort to remove the deceased head. Yeah, that's what it said. Philip Sr. was sent to Colorado State Reformatory at Buena Vista. The 19-year-old struggled with having been incarcerated for what amounted to a stupid prank as far as he was concerned. And this would turn out to be a defining event in his life. He was paroled in 1968, but in short order was arrested again for attempting to rob a gas station and was facing the possibility of 10 years in prison. He was sent back to the reformatory before being transferred to a Colorado State Mental Hospital for evaluation. All the records outlining the reasons why Philip Sr. was transferred to the mental facility have long been destroyed, so one can only speculate. With 5,800 patients on site, Philip Sr. was soon lost in a system that would not notice him affect an escape on April 18, 1969, after being at the hospital for about 10 months. How he escaped has not been made public, although there is a labyrinth of underground tunnels below the hospital, which could have afforded him a means to escape. A warrant was issued three days later for unlawful flight. He fled to Denver and picked up his girlfriend, Dorothy Lopez, and then headed to Salt Lake City, Utah. He was traveling under various aliases, and he would eventually settle on the name Daniel Warfell, the name of a childhood acquaintance who Philip Sr. would say would never be in any kind of trouble. And this worked for him for about seven years. Little is known about who would become Philip Jr.'s mother, Dorothy. She was nine years older than Philip Sr. and of Mexican descent. She herself had an array of aliases, including Dorothy Clay, which was her maiden name, Dorothy Maestas, Francis Ellen Garcia, Dorothy Stefano, Barbara Allen, and Dorothy Phillips. Her only listed occupation was prostitute. She had purportedly served some jail time, but her records have long vanished as well. 
Together, they made their way to Salt Lake City, but family members informed the FBI of their location. Phillips was picked up five months after his escape, but he managed to leap out of the back of the patrol car and got away again. This is when they made their move to California. Whatever they were doing between then and when Phillips Jr. was born in 1970, little is known. But this is the reason why he was born under the name Larry Warfell. With parents who were familiar with being on the wrong side of the law, with Phillips Sr. having been conditioned into an anti-establishment mentality that set him on quite a destructive cycle while trying to raise his family, it's easy to see how this could have an effect on the younger Phillips from a very young age. At some point, his mother left California and went back to living in a small town in Colorado with her son, but without Phillips Sr. Two days after Phillips Jr. turned six, his father had shown up in Colorado to celebrate his son's birthday. But shortly after they had settled down for dinner, FBI agents showed up and arrested him right in front of the six-year-old. It can't be confirmed, but it's been surmised that Dorothy was the one who tipped off the feds that Philip Sr. was in town. He served out the rest of his sentence. Philip Jr.'s parents filed for divorce. Philip Sr. went on to take honest work and had regular visitation with his son. In 1986, Dorothy moved with her son back to the Los Angeles area, but... Phillips Jr. would end up dropping out of school in ninth grade and began going by what his legitimate name would be, Larry Phillips. He would later meet and marry a woman named Sharon Santos. They had two children together, but seven years into the marriage, Phillips Jr. would walk out on his wife and his kids. But, it seems, he had a plan. He had become interested in bodybuilding, he became a devotee to all the muscle magazines and wanted in on the bodybuilding circuit. He purchased a five-year membership to a world-famous Gold's Gym in Venice Beach, California. This was the mecca of the bodybuilding universe, and Phillips saw it as the gateway to making it big. He wanted to be the next Arnold Schwarzenegger. He didn't have the kinds of money needed to hire a personal trainer. He didn't even have a car at this point. It would take him hours by bus to get from where he lived in Pasadena to the beachfront gym. He was dirt poor, but he had plans to change all of that. As he worked out, no matter how ripped he became, he eventually realized that he wasn't really going to be able to measure up to the others in the competition circuit. He ended up letting his membership to Gold's gym lapse, but not before he met an unlikely ally, Emil Matasorano. Matasorano was born July 19, 1966, in Temesora, Romania. Most of his life, Matasorano was overweight and frequently suffered from headaches as a result of epilepsy. His father worked as a political dissident, and his mother was a state opera member. They moved to the United States in 1974 after realizing the difficult circumstances in Romania brought on by the rule of Nicolae Ceausescu. The family moved to Los Angeles and settled into their new home, 
Mattis Serrano had a difficult time adjusting to his new life in the United States. His school life was distressing, with other students often bullying him because of his unfamiliar accent and weight issues. He became somewhat withdrawn, opting to being somewhat of a homebody, and developed an affinity for computers. At the age of 16, he began helping his mom with her state-licensed care facility for developmentally disabled adults. However, as time wore on, the relationship between Mattis Serrano's parents became strained, eventually leading to divorce. In 1983, Mattis Serrano enrolled in DeVry's Institute of Technology, taking a three-year course in electronics engineering. He graduated in 1987 with a degree in electronics and opened a computer repair business, but the business floundered. He developed an affinity for motorbikes as well as firearms and eventually bodybuilding. Tensions between his mother and father continued to wage on, and his mother incessantly tried to talk him into continuing on with school, and soon he became more withdrawn, angry, and short-tempered. Mattis Serrano met Phillips at Gold's Gym sometime in 1989, and the two became fast friends with a mutual interest in bodybuilding among other things. At first glance, the more personable and often jovial Mata Serrano seemed like an odd matchup with the more stoic Phillips. But that was kind of what Phillips looked for in a friend. He sought out people that had a need, people that he would have the upper hand with and be able to easily control and manipulate. He is said to have the skill of breaking people down and building them back up into what suited him. Mattis Serrano would be one of these people, and he would end up following Phillips further than anyone ever would. In the meantime, while on a trip to Romania to bring his grandmother to the United States, Mattis Serrano met and would eventually marry his wife Christina, with whom he would have a son, Emil Jr., However, by 1996, his wife would leave him and take their son with her, reportedly because of a massive seizure that Mattis Serrano had suffered due to his epilepsy. Phillips had gone to Colorado in 1992 where he had formulated several real estate schemes for which he was arrested. His wife ended up helping him post his bail, but he would eventually end up leaving his home, wife, and his kids and began traveling with Mata Serrano, who ended up taking him into his home when he was on the run from his charges in Colorado, basically finding himself in the exact situation his father was in when Phillips was born. It was about this time that Phillips and Mata Serrano began formulating their plans to get rich quick. The two first robbed a First Bank armored car in Littleton, Colorado on July 20th, 1993. There were no casualties and they got away with it. Five months later, on October 23rd, now in Glendale, California, Phillips and Mata Serrano were driving a brand new Ford Thunderbird they had rented from the airport. Showing off in their car, they sped quickly out of a gas station and drove off at a high rate of speed. Sergeant Ian Grimes, who was patrolling nearby, pursued the car for a short distance and eventually pulled them over. 
Grimes asked Phillips for his driver's license, to which Phillips attempted to make excuses that he had accidentally left it at home. Mata Serrano lied and said that the car belonged to Phillips' mother. Grimes, who had already determined that the car was an airport rental, ordered the two out of the car, at which time Sergeant Grimes noticed that both men were armed with 9mm Glock 17 pistols, which they were quickly disarmed of. Grimes immediately radioed for backup. A search made of the Thunderbird revealed quite an arsenal of weapons. A Polytech semi-automatic rifle with a folding stick, a Norinco Mac 90 semi-automatic rifle, a Springfield Armory 45 pistol, a Colt 45 pistol, 1,650 rounds of 762 by 39 millimeter ammunition, most of them loaded into 30 round magazines, three Chinese made 75 round drum magazines loaded with 7.62 by 39 millimeter ammunition, 967 rounds of 9mm JHP ammunition, 357 rounds of 45 JHP ammunition, 6 smoke bombs, 2 improvised explosive devices, a gas mask, 2 sets of National Armor Level 3A vests, 2 200 channel programmable scanners with earpieces, sunglasses, gloves, wigs, ski masks, a stopwatch, two spray cans of gray studio hair color, three different California license plates, and $1,620 in cash. The two were eventually identified as Larry Phillips and Emil Matasarano. Phillips was subsequently charged with conspiracy to commit robbery, grand theft auto, unlawful weapons activity, carrying a concealed and loaded firearm, and perjury. Mata Serrano was charged with conspiracy to commit robbery, grand theft auto, unlawful weapons activity, and carrying a loaded firearm inside of a car. The grand theft auto charges were eventually dropped during a preliminary hearing, along with the perjury charge against Phillips due to lack of evidence. In December, under a plea agreement, Phillips and Mata Serrano were sentenced to 99 days and 71 days in prison, respectively. They served their terms and were released a little early. On July 14, 1995, in the middle of the day in Los Angeles, Phillips and Mata Serrano robbed a Brinks armored car. Using automatic weapons with powerful ammunition, they shot the armored car's rear door off to gain access to it. The robbery left Brinks security driver Philippe Cortez, 53, injured, and security guard Herman Dwight Cook, 51, mortally wounded. In an article written about this armored car robbery, before it became known that it was Larry Phillips and Emil Matasarano who were responsible for Mr. Cook's murder, it detailed the robbery as being the likes of something law enforcement had never seen before. Mr. Cook was ambushed at a Bank of America branch in Winnetka with two armed robbers using semi-automatic rifles, fired approximately 30 rounds at him and his partner. The bullets penetrated not just the glass, but also the armored siding of the Brinks truck, 
a level of destructiveness that is unprecedented. The attackers fired from behind a four-foot wall and shot Mr. Cook as he walked from the bank to the truck. One of the men ran to the truck and shot at his partner, who was hit but managed to return fire. One of the robbers was wearing a dark jacket with the word security written across the back. They fled with an unknown amount of money in a dark blue or black Chevy Cavalier. Cook died three hours later at Northridge Medical Center. LAPD Detective Tom Wick said that at the time, he wasn't sure if Brinks guards were wearing bulletproof vests, but followed that up with it probably wouldn't have mattered. He wasn't going to be able to say at the time what kinds of ammunition was used in the robbery, nor could he discuss what types of ammunition Brinks' trucks could repel. But he did say that it was more powerful than anything he had ever seen used in a robbery before. All he would say was that he's surprised that the bullets went through. Mr. Cook had taken the dangerous job after losing his job five years earlier in the aerospace industry. Described by friends as an incredibly likable person, calm, steady, and friendly, who loved hunting, fishing, and Western novels. He was survived by his wife, Judy, and his two children, 19-year-old Tracy and 18-year-old Brian. On the morning of March 27, 1996, another Brinks-owned armored car was fired at on the street by a pair of would-be robbers, but it has never been confirmed if it was the work of Phillips and Mata Serrano. The armored car was able to speed off to avoid being robbed. On May 2, 1996, the pair escalated their crime by moving on from robbing armored trucks to robbing banks, likely because of the last failed attempt. The two stormed into a Bank of America in Van Nuys just before 10 a.m., heavily armed with automatic weapons. Within eight minutes, they made their getaway, netting over $755,000. Not even a month later, on May 31st, a little after 10 a.m., Phillips and Matasarano robbed another Bank of America, this time injuring two bank tellers and making away with $794,000. Having surveilled the bank for a few weeks prior to robbing it, they thought they were going to be able to collect at least $2 million in this robbery. But due to new security measures because of their bank robbing, a large portion of that money in Bank of America had been collected a couple days earlier. This robbery revealed a major flaw in their plans, and this would later come to foreshadow the event that would come to take place almost 10 months later in North Hollywood. On Friday, February 28, 1997, Phillips and Mata Serrano, after many months of planning and preparation, which included extensive reconnaissance activity of their intended target, the North Hollywood Bank of America branch, located at 6600 Laurel Canyon Boulevard, set out for what would become the most brazen, most violent police shootout in American history. They armed themselves with a semi-automatic HK-91, along with several illegally converted weapons, 
two Norinco Type 56S rifles, a fully automatic Norinco Type 56S1, a fully automatic Bushmaster M16 XM15 Dissipator, and a Beretta 92FS. Additionally, they had approximately 3,300 rounds of ammunition and high-capacity drum magazines for the automatic weapons. I am not a gun expert or enthusiast, so out of curiosity, I looked up some articles and videos so I can learn a little bit about the weapons that Phillips and Matasorano were using. The HK-41, short for Heckler & Koch, is a semi-automatic version of the Heckler & Koch G3 battle rifle, a fully automatic weapon. It was produced for the civilian market in the 1960s and can be illegally modified to fire fully automatically. The Norinco Type 56S rifle is a fully automatic Chinese assault rifle and is a variant of the Soviet-designed AK-47. Production started in 1956 and is still being produced today. The Bushmaster XM-15 is a line of AR-15 semi-automatic rifles manufactured by Bushmaster Firearms International, based in Madison, North Carolina. It too can also be modified into a fully automatic rifle. Throughout the documentaries and audios that I listened to for this episode, the Naringo Type 56S is repeatedly referred to as an AK-47. The two rifles are essentially exactly the same thing, just the AK-47 is the Soviet-manufactured weapon, and the Norinco Type 56, which looks almost identical to the AK-47, is the Chinese version. So if you hear their weapons referred to as an AK-47, it is accurate. It's just a gun technicality, I guess. In addition to being heavily armed, the two men had also acquired special armor-piercing bullets for their guns, and they also wore roughly 45 pounds of body armor each. Phillips painstakingly sewed together body armor that would cover everything except his head and his feet. Mata Serrano's body armor left his arms and legs exposed. Their armor included the bulletproof vest, a load-bearing vest, trauma plates to cover vital organs, groin guards, as well as military canteen pouches for ammunition storage. Phillips fashioned several pieces of homemade body armor from spare vests to cover his shins, thighs, and forearms. They had both sewn watch faces into their sleeves so they could keep track of the amount of time they would allow themselves to remain in the bank a move inspired by the 1995 heist movie, Heat. They also filled a jar with gasoline in the backseat of the car, which they had intended to use to set the car and weapons on fire to destroy evidence after the robbery. Just before exiting their vehicle, a once blue Chevy celebrity that they spray-painted white, the two men took a dose of a barbiturate, phenobarbital, a medication prescribed to Matasorano to use as a sedative for issues related to his seizures in order to calm their nerves. At 9.17 a.m., after listening to police radios on their scanners, making sure there were none patrolling nearby, the two men entered 
the Bank of America in North Hollywood, each one carrying a Norinco Type 56 assault rifle wearing full body armor. Well, it just so happens that right at that moment, two patrol officers, Lauren Farrell and Martin Perillo, were driving by right in front of the bank on Laurel Canyon and spotted the two men entering into the bank. Perello immediately issued the 211, the police code for the armed robbery. They positioned themselves behind a parked semi and watched as Phillips and Mata Serrano forced a man standing at one of the bank's ATMs into the bank at gunpoint. They immediately opened fire all over the bank's interior as a means of intimidating the tellers and customers and initiating their takeover. Outside, Officer Farrell heard the rapid gunfire and reported the shots fired over the radio. Continuing to call officers in to form a perimeter around the bank. Meanwhile, inside the bank, Phillips and Manasarano were having trouble gathering the money they wanted quickly enough, as they had been planning. Unbeknownst to them, due to new security measures implemented as a result of the recent bank robberies, banks started to break down their money into separate, lockable boxes in order to slow bank robbers down. In addition, Bank of America began varying its delivery times to its banks, and, as a result of this, the amount of money at the Laurel Canyon Bank of America location was much smaller than the men had anticipated, based on their surveillance of the place leading up to the robbery. The two reached their eight-minute time limit and ended up walking out of the bank with $303,305 and three die packs. By that time, small teams of police officers were surrounding the bank. Sergeant Larry Haynes and Officer Martin Whitfield had surrounded the north side of the bank. Officers Farrell and Perello were on the south side of the bank. Officer Edward Brentlinger was on the north side, and officers James Aboravan and Stuart Guy, as well as detectives Tracy Angelus and William Krulak, were across the street from the bank's western front door. At 9.24 a.m., Phillips exited the bank from the north door and Matto Serrano from the south door. Phillips quickly spotted Haynes and Whitfield blocking the northwest intersection with their cruisers. He immediately raised his weapon and began firing upon them and several citizens, riddling both of their patrol cars with bullets, penetrating his car through and through with his armor-piercing bullets. He struck one civilian in the chest and another in the ankle. Suddenly, Sergeant Haynes was hit in the left shoulder. Meanwhile, Mata Serrano is firing in all directions, and then suddenly, Phillips began to target a locksmith kiosk across the street, where detectives Krulak and Angelus, along with officers Zavoravan and Guy, are firing at the gunmen and quickly trying to take cover. When Phillips turned his back, Zavoravan raised his 12-gauge shotgun and shot Phillips in the back, but his armor deflected all the shot pellets. Philip spun around and unloaded his weapon on the kiosk. Zaboravan, quickly realizing that the two detectives do not have a bulletproof vest on, quickly covers them with his body, but is shot in the lower back twice. 
Phillips ran out of ammunition and had to reload. During the break, the wounded officer quickly looked to find better coverage. Phillips was shooting from car to car, and the officers would run from car to car when there would be a break in the gunfire. They were also being injured by pieces of glass, metal, and asphalt flying up from the gunfire hitting those surfaces all around them. As they were running for cover, Detective Krulak was shot in the ankle. The gunmen continued firing in all directions at anything they could see moving, and they were not going down, despite having been shot several times themselves. The police officers are attempting to apply lethal force, having been given the orders over the radio to aim for the head, but their handguns and shotguns simply do not have the range and are unable to penetrate the body armor these men are wearing. Following the Los Angeles riots of 1992, the LAPD had lobbied for better patrol rifles, but they were turned down. Now, they were being seriously outgunned by these two suspects. The tide of the gun battle is not going their way, and the LAPD desperately needed to get the SWAT team deployed to the area. The Special Weapons and Tactics Unit is specially trained and equipped to respond to this type of dangerous event. By 9.28 a.m., the first SWAT unit is getting prepared to head into the situation at the Bank of America. If you look at some of the video footage from the helicopters that were filming all of this unfold, you can see some men wearing gym shorts and tennis shoes. These are the SWAT team who rushed to the scene from the gym. Their vehicles are equipped with armor and military-grade weapons, but they didn't waste any time getting their gear on. While the SWAT team were en route to the scene, Phillips and Matasrano were still firing, attempting to slowly make their way to their vehicle. Phillips spotted and suddenly took aim at Officer Whitfield. A bullet suddenly shatters Whitfield's right femur, and shrapnel pieces hit him in the chest and in the arm. And despite the fact that he is down, Phillips continued firing at him. Another officer attempted to draw fire from Phillips so that the severely wounded Whitfield could drag himself approximately 30 yards to take cover behind a tree. He called dispatch over the radio that he was losing consciousness and that he is on Laurel Canyon. The fire department and paramedics are located nearby and desperately wanted to treat the wounded, but the relentlessness of Phillips and Manor Serrano's gunfire prevented them from entering the area. The only thing they can do is take cover and wait for the SWAT team. Meanwhile, wounded officer Zaboravan and Detective Krulak knew that they needed to somehow find better cover than behind parked vehicles. So they looked towards a nearby row of stores and shops and decided that they needed to go over there for cover. They spotted a dentist's office with both of its front doors shattered, and the two of them ran through the doors and into the lobby of the dentist's office. Dentist Jorge Montez was watching the events unfold from his second-story office window, located directly across from the bank, when he suddenly heard screams outside his door. Officer Zaboravan told the dentist that he had been shot and asked him to help. Dr. Montez quickly found where his wounds were and did everything that he could to treat his wounds and stop the bleeding. Detective Krulak still had his wits about him and wanted to keep the door covered in case the gunman saw them go into the dentist's office. 
all the while asking Dr. Montez to remove what was sticking out of his ankle. But the dentist told him that it could possibly make the bleeding worse if he did, and he was going to leave it there, but he would stop the bleeding. While all of this is going on, Zaboravan's partner, Officer Guy, is still trying to get better cover outside. He attempts to make his way behind another vehicle, but he too is struck in the femur and in the forearm. He used his gun belt as a makeshift tourniquet, but his injuries are grave. Detective Angelus is still nearby with Gray's wounds to her upper body and is doing everything that she could to reassure Officer Guy that help was on the way. Phillips and Mata Serrano begin to make their way around towards the back of the bank where their vehicle is parked. Officers were positioned behind a cinder block wall. They began to take fire at the gunmen in an attempt to draw their attention away from all of the wounded officers and civilians at the front of the bank so that help could possibly reach them. However, as soon as they drew the gunmen's attention, Phillips opened fire with his weapon, spraying the cinder block wall with bullets that were going through the wall like butter. While the gunmen are focused at the rear of the bank, dispatchers desperately trying to sort out where the wounded officers are located in the front, it quickly becomes apparent that Officer Whitfield is critically wounded. Dispatchers were attempting to keep him talking, but they could tell that he was quickly losing consciousness. Van Nuys police officers Todd Schmitz and his partner, Anthony Kubinick, answered the call for help for Officer Whitfield. By 9.30 a.m., over a dozen officers and civilians had been injured by Phillips and Mata Serrano. Dispatch continued to call for all available units to descend upon the scene, and soon the numbers of officers present swelled to well over 350, but none of them are able to put a stop to the gunmen firing off their automatic weapons. At 9.35 a.m., the dye packs in the money bag explode, and Manasarano drops the bag and gets inside the getaway car. However, Phillips did not get in the car with him. He continued to stand outside the car, shooting at officers and civilians all around him. He even takes aim at the sky and shoots at police and news helicopters flying overhead. They quickly retreat to a higher, more safer altitude. Phillips then reached into his getaway car and retrieved his HK-91 assault rifle with ammunition more deadly than the weapon he had been firing. While the gunman's attention is diverted to the back of the bank and towards the helicopters, officers Schmitz and Kubinek made their attempt to save gravely wounded officer Whitfield but as soon as they enter the zone where the firefight had been taking place, they discover Officer Guy and Detective Angelus wounded and pinned down in the parking lot. They quickly lift the two officers into their squad car and reversed out of the parking lot. As they are doing so, they heard the desperate call from Officer Zaboravan from the dentist's office. So they quickly made their way over there to save him and Detective Kulak. Officer Whitfield is still pinned down behind that tree, clinging to life. Dispatch was still talking to him through his radio, reassuring him that help is on the way. 
Officer Whitfield thanked her for talking. Growing ever more desperate, the LAPD decided that they needed to find some gun stores and commandeer some better weapons. They headed over to B&B Guns and picked up several AR-15s and some ammunition. But by the time they got back with these assault rifles, the SWAT team was arriving on the scene, along with specific orders to deploy their assault rifles with ammunition the gunman's body armor could not withstand. At 9.48 a.m., the SWAT team makes their way to the south side of the bank with a plan to strategically apprehend the gunmen. But first, they want to save the wounded officers and civilians. They suddenly spot an armored truck driving by, so one of the SWAT officers quickly gets out of his squad car and commandeers the vehicle. They radio to dispatch that they got the armored truck and to tell them where the wounded officers are located. They drive the armored car directly into where the shootout had been taking place, looking for Officer Whitfield, who by that time had been bleeding for more than 30 minutes. Dispatch was able to direct them to him, as Whitfield was no longer responding to radio calls. At 9.53 a.m., police emerged out of the armored car and rescued Officer Whitfield. He was transferred to a nearby hospital for surgery on his injuries. He would survive. While the armored car is rescuing victims, Phillips and Mata Serrano are slowly making their way out of the bank parking lot. Mata Serrano slowly driving and Phillips walking alongside, still firing his weapon indiscriminately. Officers shoot out the tires on their getaway car and it begins to leak gas, and soon will be undrivable. Phillips, undaunted, continues firing. Mata Serrano leaves the parking lot in the car and gets into a neighborhood street. Phillips is still on foot, ducking behind a parked trailer. Officers were taking positions around the corners and trying to take cover while still shooting at the suspects as they made their way up the street. Phillips was still behind the trailer, heading towards officers who were attempting to fire at him, but suddenly his weapon jammed. Police call it a stovepipe jam, where an empty shell casing doesn't completely eject from the weapon and is kind of just hanging there on the side of the gun, not allowing the next round to advance into the chamber. It's relatively easy to clear, but instead of clearing it, Phillips drops the weapon and pulls out his 9mm handgun. Phillips began walking towards officers waiting for him on the corner. Officers returned fire and one of their rounds struck his hand and he dropped his handgun. He knelt down to pick up his gun, stood back up, pointed the gun at himself under his chin, and pulled the trigger. At the exact same moment, a police bullet ripped through his shoulder and severed his spine. He dropped to the ground, onto his side, and dies. It's 9.53 a.m. And all of this is being broadcasted on television from helicopters circling above. You can actually see Phillips put the gun up to his chin, and you see a small poof of smoke come out 
the top of his head. Matta Serrano continued to flee up the street in the getaway car. He suddenly stopped the car and got out with his weapon and started firing in the areas around him. He slowly hobbled around back to the driver's side of the car, and now at this time police believe that he may be wounded. He began trying to drive the vehicle again, but it would no longer move for him very much. He encountered a pickup truck and fires at it through his front windshield. You can see this too from the helicopter vantage point. Puffs of smoke and glass blowing out of his windshield. The driver of that truck quickly jumped out and abandoned his vehicle. Mata Serrano pulled up alongside the pickup and unloaded his weapons from his trunk and put them into the abandoned truck with the intentions of driving off in that vehicle since his is now inoperable. He jumped in, but goes nowhere. The driver took the keys with him. A nearby squad car filled with SWAT officers inside suddenly and quickly was waved into the area where he's parked and they descend upon Mata Serrano. He got out of the truck and took cover behind his getaway car with one of his weapons and opened fire on the SWAT officers. The officers dropped to the ground with their rifles and pummeled rounds into Mata Serrano's ankles and feet. After over two minutes of intense gunfire, Mata Serrano drops his weapon, surrendering, with more than 20 gunshot wounds to his legs and ankles. The SWAT officers carefully draw near the suspect, kick his weapon away from him, and place him in handcuffs. It is 10.01 a.m. This, the North Hollywood bank robbery shootout, is now over. Mata Serrano would eventually die where he lay from traumatic blood loss before paramedics could ever reach him. The LAPD would state that they did call for paramedics, but it is policy for paramedics to not enter what is called a hot zone, an area where they may be uncertain if there is still a chance of gunfire in the area. Officers still had yet to find out what was going on inside the actual bank itself. There had been some reports of the possibility of a third gunman still inside holding hostages. The SWAT team stormed the bank and found that the suspects had locked the 30 employees and customers inside the vault. There were no other suspects. The two individuals responsible for this melee were dead. By the time the North Hollywood Bank of America shootout was over, these two fully armored, heavily armed men, Larry Phillips and Emil Matasarano, had fired approximately 1,100 rounds at police, civilians, vehicles, businesses, homes, and structures, while police fired approximately 650 rounds back at them. Following police training, the patrol officers responded to the 211 call, and the subsequent officer needs help call had aimed their gunfire at the center of mass, or torsos, of the suspects. However, both Phillips and Matasarano were wearing aramid body armor, which covered their vital organs, with the exception of their heads. 
Aramid fibers are a class of heat-resistant and very strong synthetic fibers used in aerospace and military applications. For ballistic-rated body armor fabric and ballistic composites in bike tires, and also as an asbestos substitute. So, the aramid body armor suits that the two gunmen painstakingly sewn together to form their full body armor were able to provide for them more bullet resistance, including enabling them to absorb the force of pistol bullets and shotgun pellets, more so than that of standard-issue police Kevlar vests. Kevlar is the registered trademark for a para-aramid synthetic fiber related to other aramids. Developed by DuPont in 1965, this high-strength material was first commercially used in the early 1970s as a replacement for steel and racing car tires. It is typically spun into ropes or fabric sheets that can be used as such or as an ingredient in composite materials. Kevlar is a well-known component of personal armor such as combat helmets, ballistic face masks, and ballistic vests. The U.S. military forces have utilized Kevlar helmets, vests, face masks, as well as Kevlar liners used to protect the crews of armored fighting vehicles. Kevlar is also used in emergency services gear that involves heat, like firefighting, and Kevlar vests are used by security guards, police officers, and SWAT teams. Mata Serrano's chest was additionally protected by a metal trauma plate, which successfully withstood a direct shot from a SWAT officer's AR-15. The service pistols carried by the first responding officers had insufficient range and relatively poor accuracy, and additionally, they were pinned down by the robber's high rate of rapid fire making it difficult for officers to attempt a headshot. Each robber was actually shot and penetrated by at least 10 bullets each, yet both were able to remain standing and continue shooting. The ineffectiveness of the standard police patrol pistols and shotguns in penetrating Phillips's and Manaserano's body armor led to a change in the United States in the way select police patrol officers were armed. Like SWAT team officers, patrol officers were starting to be armed with heavier firepower, such as semi-automatic 5.56mm AR-15 type rifles. SWAT teams, whose close-quarter battle weapons usually consist of submachine guns that fired pistol cartridges, such as the Heckler & Koch MP5, began supplementing them with AR-15 rifles and carbines. Seven months after the North Hollywood shootout, the Department of Defense gave 600 surplus M16s to the LAPD, which were issued to each patrol sergeant. The M16 rifle is a United States military adaptation of the Armalite AR-15 rifle. The M16 was put into use in the United States military in 1964 and was deployed the following year for jungle warfare during operations in the Vietnam War. LAPD patrol vehicles now carry AR-15s as standard issue, which are the predecessors of the M16. LAPD patrol cars are also now fitted with bullet-resistant Kevlar plating in their doors. Also as a result of the North Hollywood incident, the LAPD authorized its officers to carry 45 ACP caliber semi-automatic 
pistols as duty sidearms. Prior to 1997, only SWAT officers carried this weapon. So yet another controversy arose in the aftermath of the North Hollywood shooting. Mata Serrano, who engaged with police in this chilling 44-minute shootout broadcasted live on television for the world to see, slowly, and some say unnecessarily, bled to death on that neighborhood street behind the bank. The LAPD stated that they did not allow Mata Serrano to receive medical attention because ambulance personnel were following standard procedures in hostile situations by refusing to enter the area known as the hot zone, as Mata Serrano was still considered to be dangerous, and because there were still reports, or at least the possibility, that there was still a third suspect in the bank, which had yet to be resolved at the time Mata Serrano was handcuffed. A Los Angeles Times investigation reported that he was allowed to unnecessarily bleed to death because some of the officers involved in the situation made a series of mistakes and that some of the firefighters violated their department's guidelines for dealing with such situations. One of the most critical mistakes, according to the LA Times, occurred when a Los Angeles Police Department officer erroneously told city fire department rescuers that he thought Mata Serrano was dead, and emergency medical technicians accepted that assessment without further examining the suspect. Later, when rescue personnel discovered that Mata Serrano was, in fact, still alive, the fire department's dispatchers were never informed, according to one of the commanders on the scene. As a result, Mata Serrano, handcuffed and obviously in pain, lay bleeding in the streets for nearly 30 minutes after firefighters at the scene realized he was alive, as dispatchers were still assuming he was dead. By the time an ambulance was sent to his aid, approximately 70 minutes later, it was too late. Mata Serrano had succumbed to his injuries. Residents nearby watched Mata Serrano dying in the streets as they stood by observing the aftermath of this shootout. The bystanders understood these guys were the bad guys. They had committed an atrocity, but still insisted that he should not have been left to slowly bleed out to death the way that he did. Los Angeles authorities' version of the events that took place on that North Hollywood neighborhood street is in sharp contrast with the LA Times' account of the incident. Authorities claim that the Times constructed a version of the events by piecing together hours of taped police and fire department radio transmissions, video footage, and photographs that did not include, at the time, the unavailable report of an LAPD investigation and interviews with eyewitnesses. For example, police and fire department officials have said that rescuers in the first ambulance to reach the scene opted to take a wounded citizen to the hospital because his injuries were severe but treatable, while Mata Serrano appeared to have little chance of survival. Authorities also said that they could not send a second ambulance to pick up Mata Serrano because the scene where he lay wounded was a so-called kill zone in which other suspects were believed to be at large. The Times investigation contradicted this official version 
on several key points. One is that rescuers were in little danger on the block where Mata Serrano lay because the area had been secured by a dozen or more armed police officers, according to witness accounts and fire department tapes. Mata Serrano did not appear to be on the verge of death, according to witness accounts and statements from police officers at the scene. He was talking to police, moving his legs, lifting his head, and moaning for help. At one point, a detective kicked him twice because he thought the wounded suspect was trying to stand up and walk away. According to tape recordings of the fire department radio messages, rescuers were fully aware that the citizen they took to the hospital instead of the critically wounded Mata Serrano had only suffered minor, non-life-threatening injuries. Also, police allowed a critical 20 minutes to elapse after the first ambulance departed before calling to remind a dispatcher that the wounded robber still needed treatment, according to police communication tapes. Even though Mata Serrano was just a few minutes from death at that point, the officer told the dispatcher to send an ambulance only where there's one available, according to LAPD communication tapes. In a lawsuit filed on behalf of Mata Serrano's two children, their attorney alleges that the LAPD officers cold-bloodedly murdered Mata Serrano by denying him medical attention. But the action alleges misconduct by the officers at the scene, not fire and rescue personnel involved. However, the deputy city attorney defending Los Angeles in the action said numerous officers called an ambulance to pick up Mata Serrano, but that was the fire department's officials that canceled their request. Battalion Commander R.C. Wilmot, who was in charge of fire and rescue operations during the shootout, said that firefighters rely heavily on police to tell them when an area is safe enough for ambulances. Wilmot conceded that his department's rescuers, emergency medical technicians Alan R. Skyer and Jesse Ortiz, should not have reported Mata Serrano dead, as they did five minutes after arriving on the scene without at least taking his pulse. The lawsuit was tried in the United States District Court in February and March of 2000, but ended in a mistrial with a hung jury. The suit was later dropped when Mata Serrano's family agreed to dismiss the action with a waiver of malicious prosecution. Malicious prosecution means that his family filed this action for damages brought on against the LAPD with this civil suit that was unsuccessful and went forward without probable cause. So from what I understood this to mean, if his family were to press forward with their case, they could be charged with malicious prosecution as they had been unable to prove their case against the LAPD. I have been back and forth about how I feel about Mata Serrano's death all week as I was putting this story together. Even today, as I record this, I still don't know how I ultimately feel about the decision made to not render aid to this man. We are dealing with a relatively unsympathetic person. But that's me sitting here, looking back upon what he did in the streets of North Hollywood more than 20 years ago. With a reckless abandon, he and his partner in crime had zero regard for the lives of countless innocent bystanders as they sprayed their automatic weapon fire indiscriminately. But then, if I had been standing there, looking out of my living room window at the man bleeding to death on the street, 
my instinct would be to want to get that man some help, no matter what had just transpired. At the same time, it's not the job of the paramedics to put themselves in the line of fire in an effort to do their job either. Even though the situation seemed to be under control by the time Mata Serrano was handcuffed, I still don't know how I feel about it. What do you guys think? Let me know on the discussion page. Maybe you can get me to see things more clearly. When all of this was said and done, the shootout lasted a total of 44 minutes. Phillips and Mata Serrano fired approximately 1,100 rounds of ammunition, striking police officers, civilians, vehicles, buildings, and structures. Larry Phillips used the following firearms in this order. A Norinco Type 56 Sporter semi-automatic rifle converted to fire automatically with 75 to 100 round drum magazines and 30 round box magazines. A Heckler & Koch M91A3 semi-automatic rifle. A Norinco Type 56 S1 semi-automatic rifle converted to fire automatically with 75 to 100 round drum magazines and 30 round box magazines. And lastly, a 9mm Beretta Model 92FS semi-automatic pistol. Emil Matasarano used the following firearms in this order. A Norinco 56 Sporter semi-automatic rifle converted to fire automatically with 75 to 100 round drum magazines and 30 round box magazines, and a Bushmaster XM15 E2S dissipator semi-automatic rifle heavily modified into a selective fire weapon firing from two 100 round beta magazines. Police fired back a total of 650 rounds striking the two gunmen several times, but with weapons that were incapable of penetrating the men's body armor, which weighed approximately 45 pounds, explaining why the men moved in a cumbersome manner as they made their way around the bank and into the neighborhood streets. Twelve officers and eight civilians were shot and or wounded that morning, and miraculously, the only fatalities were the two gunmen. 17 LAPD officers received the Departmental Medal of Valor for their actions that day and had the opportunity to meet with President Bill Clinton. On the LAPD website, it reads, On Friday, February 28, 1997, the Los Angeles Police Department experienced a day of terror and remarkable heroism. The North Hollywood Bank shootout will long be remembered as one of the country's most shocking displays of criminal behavior and an outstanding example of professional, heroic law enforcement. On this day, two men in full body armor held up a bank and then proceeded to shower a North Hollywood community with hundreds of armor-piercing AK-47 rounds. Miraculously, of the 12 officers and eight civilian bystanders who were injured, none were killed. This amazing fact is attributable to the bravery and heroic actions on that infamous day of the men and women 
of the Los Angeles Police Department. The officers honored for their actions on that day are Officer Don Anderson, Detective Tracy Angeles, Detective Vincent Bancroft, Officer Edward Brentlinger, Officer Anthony Kabunok, Officer John Caparelli, Detective Thomas Culata, Officer Edwin Dominguez, Officer Stephen Gomez, Detective Kevin Harley, Officer Richard Massa, Sergeant Israel Medina, Officer Charles Paraguay, Officer Todd Schmitz, Officer Conrado Torres, Detective Lawrence Winston, Detective Philip Wixon, Officer James Zaboravan, and Officer Richard Zelinsky. In 2003, an American film inspired by the shootout called 44 Minutes, The North Hollywood Shootout, was released. And in 2004, the Los Angeles Police Department Museum opened an exhibit showcasing Phillips and Matasarano's weapons and body armor, while their getaway vehicle and several police cruisers involved in the shootout were put on display at the Los Angeles Police Historical Society Museum in Highland Park. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of California Dreaming, The Tale of 44 Minutes. In the beginning of the episode, you heard a brief audio clip of the police radio transmissions at the start of the bank robbery that led to the 44-minute shootout. If you stay tuned after all the outro stuff, I will play the 12 minutes of police radio calls for help on that February morning while all of this was going down. It's pretty intense and some of it is hard to hear, but I found it to be quite fascinating to listen to. So keep listening after the show and I'll play it for you. I do have a couple of podcasts I wanted you to hear a little bit more about. One is my pod sister, Bestie in Podcasting. She's Positively Adorbs, Tawny, and her fabulous show, The Dirty Bits. Hi, I'm Tawny Plattis, and I host The Dirty Bits Podcast, a show where I very casually retell the sexy, scandalous, and salacious stories your teacher probably left out. We premiere a new episode every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Visit us at tawnyvoice.com slash dirtybits to learn more. See you next Tuesday. And the other is from a new show I've just started binging 36 times. Hey, Krista. Hey, Lily. Did you know in your lifetime you'll pass a murderer 36 times? I did. And you know why? Why? Because we're 36 times. A Canadian true crime podcast which covers crimes in the Great White North. Oh, right. Every episode we focus on a major crime and then we lighten things up with a kooky one. We talk about everything from the criminal justice system itself to animals arguably not doing what they should. Bringing you true crime with a shot of maple syrup. Catch our episodes bi-weekly on iTunes or your favorite, that's favorite with a U, podcast app. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to continue the conversation, please feel free to join, follow, post, share, and comment on the Facebook California Dreaming discussion page. Follow me on Twitter at CaliforniaPod 
and on Instagram at California Dreaming Pod. California Dreaming has also created a Patreon, and I'm excited to announce that the very first bonus episode is now available for anyone who makes at least a minimum contribution of $1. You may have also noticed that the California Dreaming cover art has been changed thanks to all of the creative and wonderful support I am now getting from being a part of the Orbital Jigsaw family of podcasts. If you haven't already heard, we are now part of the network that brings you such fantastic shows as The Concession Stand, where hosts Nick and Andy geek out over all things entertainment, or Super Nerds UK, where hosts Ben, Ian, Tim, and Simon take an irreverent look at pop culture, or Busted Wide Open, a show where Nick and Sir Ian Dangerous take you on a weekly journey through the hottest news in sports entertainment, or Historium, a podcast devoted to the strange, obscure, or otherwise interesting stories from history, or the Is This Adulting podcast, where best friends, Stephen and Chris, break down the stigma on mental illness through the lens of comedy, or the Dirty Bits podcast. Join host Tawny Plattis for her casual retellings of the sexy, scandalous, and salacious stories your history teacher likely left out. Or 4-1 Owned, a show where hosts GT, Dak, Kevin, Jack, and Matt fill your ear holes with all things gaming. And of course, Insight. Join hosts Allie and Charlie as they take a new look at true crime, mysteries, and forgotten history. And don't forget, their kids have put together their own show called Insight Junior. So, if any of these shows sound like they might pique your interest, visit www.orbitaljigsaw.com and click on their links. I would also like to announce that the Orbital Jigsaw family of podcasts has now officially launched its merchandise store. So, if you think you absolutely cannot live without a California Dreaming hoodie or mug or even a phone case, then hurry on over to the merch store. I'll post a link in the show notes and on social media. And everything has the brand new logo on it. Thank you again for listening. Stay tuned for the additional police radio transmission audio. And until next time, sweet dreams.
All units in route to the 211 in progress at Lower Canyon, north of Kittredge. Witness advises suspects are armed with AK-47. Four shots are being fired from inside the bank. 15 40, more shots are being fired from the suspects at Lower Canyon, north of Kittredge at the Bank of America. 15 20, have the ambulance respond to victory in Lower Canyon for standby. Air support has been notified. 40 seconds. 15 10, SWAT has been notified. Everybody stay down, rapid automatic fire. They're panning the area with fire. Everybody, this is offering these help. Shots fired. Fully automatic weapons. I need to finish how 15 40 is requesting help. Requesting help, all units, officers requesting help, Lower Canyon, North of Kittredge, at the Bank of America, shots are being fired. Officer requested help at the bank. SWAT is being notified, Code 3, all officers stay down, shots are being fired from AK-47, there is an officer down. Any unit know how many officers are down? We have one. There's more than one officer down. So I don't think you know how to hear this. Go for it. Get a tackle alert going. I've one of the officers have been hit. We are declaring attack alert. RA is in route. SWAT is being notified to airlift. They're requesting a supervisor to form a recovery unit to pick up the officer. 15 L40 and one of the other officers down. Fifteen L40, my wound is not serious, it's in the upper arm. Fifteen L40, if I just is not serious, it's in the upper arm. They need the other officer picked up. What is the location of the officer? Hughes Family Market, Hughes Family Market. The officer is down at the Hughes Family Market requesting a supervisor to organize a unit to go in and get the officer. Hughes Family Market. Suspect on the north side of the building is walking around like nothing. They got AK-47 
north side of the building, armed with AK-47, wearing heavy body armor. The suspects are firing at all officers. Stay down per the air unit. The suspects are behind the two white vehicles on the north side of the bank. The suspects are behind the two white vehicles on the north side of the bank. These guys are getting ready to get it. One suspect is in the white vehicle. All officers stay down. One suspect is still firing at officers in the rear of the bank. One suspect has entered a white vehicle on the west side of the bank. we got one suspect in a white car parked in the handicap spot at the center of the bank. Okay, so they just entered the bank parking lot. Someone's right there behind the chair. One suspect is attempting to exit through the rear of the bank. He's in a white vehicle. Does anyone have a clear shot of the suspect? 